Our text bears the title, A Psalm for the Sabbath. And I find it a little interesting and curious that this is the only time we find the word Sabbath in the whole Psalter, in the title of this psalm. And it has been a question on many people's minds, commentators, preachers, uh, believers, readers, those who sing this psalm. Why? What does this psalm have to do with the Sabbath? It's not really drop dead obvious and there are a lot of different opinions. It's not entirely clear whether it was written for the Sabbath, but we do know that it was adopted for the Sabbath. Very early on, probably four or five hundred years before the coming of Christ, we know that there were psalms set aside for every day of the week. And that this was a psalm that was read and is still in synagogues, read on the Sabbath evening before Friday evening and in the Sabbath service itself. Why? Well, I do believe, and as we turn to it now, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this psalm is a powerful witness to the purpose of the Sabbath. To centering our lives and its role in in centering the lives of the believer on our Lord Jesus Christ. As my title suggests, I believe public worship, our weekly gathering on the Lord's Day, is intended to put the Lord at the center of our lives. The Lord is at the center of this psalm, literally in verse 8. And in our worship, we declare God's gospel and His law, His justice and His mercy. And we affirm our future hope. All of those themes are found here. So let's rise now for the reading of our Old Testament text, Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold... Your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now as we Pray together for illumination from the Spirit found, uh, the prayer found in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen.
reading of the New Testament, we turn to Hebrews 4, found on page 1002 in your Pew Bibles. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he said, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please join me in the prayer of uh, understanding printed in your bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. So our sermon title says, sort of in the form of a question, how to center your life on the Lord. And who wouldn't want to do such a thing? Who, who wouldn't want to have a, a stable life, a balanced life, a life grounded and rooted in lasting, true, good, and beautiful things? And I know that we all struggle to do so. There's much wisdom here in this psalm. Um, I want to look at this psalm as we've often looked at psalms from the inside out, following the the dictum really uh, fitting in this psalm that uh, often the thesis is in the center of the target, the bullseye, and we'll work our way out. And so we're going to focus initially on verse 8. The public worship centers our lives on the Lord. You, O Lord, are on high forever. Our second point, we'll see that on both sides of the Lord there are evildoers. And we exalt the Lord in our worship as judge in the midst of the chaos of a fallen and broken world. And third and finally, we'll look at the outer ring uh, that in worship we proclaim our Lord's saving works, his mercy and his love and his faithfulness. One of the great medieval Jewish commentators, uh, Rashi, 
lived in the 12th century. And commenting on the title of the psalm, he said, The Levites sang this psalm on the Sabbaths. And this psalm deals with the subject of the world to come, which is holy Sabbath. The world to come is holy rest. It is remarkable how much the medieval rabbi, Rashi, agrees with Hebrews chapter 4, with our Heidelberg Catechism, that the Sabbath is about the new creation, the world to come, and that that world is characterized by rest. In other words, God's creation, God's redemption as new creation, are oriented toward ushering in a never-ending Sabbath. A Sabbath with a morning but no evening. I haven't read Rashi's entire commentary, uh, but I gather that what he means is that Psalm 92 provides us a picture of the Lord on high forever. It gives us a future orientation, a hope. And this new creation, this Sabbath age, will be ushered in through the judgment and destruction of all of God's enemies. That's on display here. You cannot avoid it. And this, though, will be attended as well with the flourishing of the righteous. A time when they will praise and give thanks to the Lord on high, declaring His righteousness and holiness, His power and glory. An age of shalom, which will bring an end to our suffering, our sin. And our brokenness. That is what the Sabbath was created for. To orient us, to direct us toward that goal, that end, that aim. And that is why we need this regular gathering with the saints, with God's people, this public worship. To preserve, to restore, to reorient us each and every week. As we drift away and get off course. To orient us around the true reality that Jesus is the Lord. The Lordship of Christ, David's greater son. So I believe that Psalm 92 is a very fitting psalm for the Sabbath. It is designed for the Sabbath. It is a poetic image, a picture in words of this spiritual truth, this holy reality that the Lord should be at the center of our lives and that the Lord's day is the tool, the instrument, the gift given to us to put Him there and keep Him there. May the Lord use this day our worship this day, to help accomplish what our catechism teaches we would do, work in us through His Spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath by resting from our evil ways. So I want to look at verse 8. Verse 8, it stands out, uh, maybe not so much in English translation, but it stands out as as the center of this psalm. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. It's not its own sentence in English translation. And so it can get a little bit lost in the shuffle. But as we have seen, oftentimes Hebrew poetry puts the the truth, the central truth, in the center of the poem. And verse 8 is placed as carefully and precisely in the center of this psalm as it can be. It stands out as being the only single line verse of Hebrew poetry. We have a number of bicola, double line, even a few triple lines here. But it's, it stands alone as a single line, four words. It is precisely in the center. There are 52 Hebrew words before verse 8 and 52 Hebrew words after verse 8. There are seven uses of the name of the Lord, Yahweh, in this psalm. And verse 8 is the central use. There are three uses before and three uses after. 
And the psalm opens by teaching us that it is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises to your name. And then it calls him this, this other divine name, El Yon, Most High. And here we see the, the, the sort of call, give thanks to the Lord Most High. And then the response, the Lord is Most High forever. It proceeds to put the name of Yahweh at the center of our composition. And of course, Hebrew names, biblical names, are not just sounds that we call people's attention by. They are an expression of character, of his works, of his power. They are a resume, his righteousness. And uh, this psalm says that, that we declare that he has revealed that name to signify his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So the sevenfold repetition of Yahweh represents the fulfillment, this, this perfect ideal recounting of the name of the Lord, Sabbath praise and worship. And it is surely one of the things that makes this a fitting psalm for the Sabbath. Uh, the word Sabbath uh, comes from the verb rest, but it's also closely related to the Hebrew word for seven. The seventh day is the day of rest. Because we rest on it, it is the Sabbath day. So the composition of Psalm 92 is one of great order and balance. May our Sabbaths all help us restore some order and balance to our lives. It praises and glorifies the Creator God who brings order and balance to our lives. It reflects His order in the midst, in the midst yet of a chaotic world. Some people categorize Psalms as as Psalms of orientation, praises, everything's going well. Psalms of disorientation. How long, O Lord? Why is everything going in a handbasket? And then Psalms of reorientation. Thank you, God, for setting my feet once again on the rock. We can broadly think of Psalms in those categories. And if we think that way, Psalm 92 is a psalm of orientation. It's a very balanced psalm of praise. And that's a picture of the Sabbath. It brings order to our chaotic Lives By way of application, I believe that putting the name of the Lord at its center is teaching us that we should put the praise of the Lord at the center. Um, the Lord's Day, our worship here, one of the things that uh, is a hallmark of our Reformed tradition in particular, is that worship is about God. <laughs> it puts our attention on Him. It's not about us. Even our experience. Yes, we do encounter and experience the living God in worship. But the Lord is the center and focus of our Sabbath day worship. And the opening of the psalm also uses language that points us back to the seven days of creation, where the Sabbath comes from in the Old Testament's understanding. It starts by saying, Tov, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name. This reminds us of the daily benediction of the creation account. And God saw what he had made, and it was good. It was good. And of course, on the sixth day, it is very good. This is the climax of his work of creation. Male and female made in his image. And the goodness of creation reflects the goodness of the creator God. And as we reflect the image of that creator God, we are to give thanks and praise him for his goodness. It is good for us to do so. It is our purpose to do so, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The central verse praises God by proclaiming Him to be what He is in fact, the Most High God on high forever. And this is very similar to the New Testament confession of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. Using the same Greek word that is here in this psalm, kurios, Lord. 
And that means not only that, that he's a great guy, that he's victorious, but he is ruling and reigning. Psalm 92, we'll see, we'll come back to this point, is also our intro for the Psalms that follow, what are often called the royal Psalms, the kingship Psalms, 93 through 100. We talk about how the Lord reigns. Psalm 92 is the prologue to that royal set of songs. To crown our weekly work with thanksgiving and praise for the Lord is a fulfillment of our created purpose. And to do so, we have to stop. This is where, uh, if, if you read, you know, you can do a search on your phones. We all have these wonderful computers in our pockets, right? You read every use of the word Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's not really clear what Israel was supposed to do. It sort of patterned their worship in the temple. You know, the, the priests uh, baked some new bread on the Sabbath, so we got some good fresh bread on the Sabbath. But, but you know, a lot of Old Testament worship is festival, temple-driven, morning and evening. And it, yes, it has a sabbatical cycle. But what were you doing if you didn't live in Jerusalem? Men only had to go to the temple three times a year. What did the Sabbath look like? And the clearest thing that we're told to do in the Old Testament is to stop. Stop. You have to stop what you're doing to hear and see, to acknowledge that God is on high, your maker. Regularly putting the Lord at the center of your life for sinners like us, Psalm 23, which we sung, our feet stray. Right, but he restores us to the way. He does that through the Sabbath as our shepherd. We image our creator by resting, by working and resting as he did. We have to remember the Sabbath day. We have to keep it holy. Psalm 92 also teaches us that this worship is not merely private, daily worship. We're all called to make our lives sacrifices of thanksgiving and joy, but has a public corporate component. It does that in a couple of ways. Now, the gathered worship of God's people is the worship which most truly orients and most powerfully works. Uh, it's easy to pray when we're on the metro or before a meal, or to bow our heads in a restaurant or at Starbucks, and, and to seek to put God there. But God is working. His Spirit is working. We confess in a powerful way when we gather here and really set everything else aside for the day. Verse 2 talks about the Lord's love and faithfulness in the morning and evening. And it, it brings our minds to the morning and evening sacrifice. Again, that corporate expression of Israel's worship. People weren't allowed to have morning and evening sacrifices at home. Only in the temple. And the musical accompaniment here in verse 3 suggests the gathered worship of the saints. People probably didn't have all these instruments at home. And there was no recorded music. And the closing of the psalm echoes the opening with its metaphor of the righteous as trees planted in the house of the Lord. Dwelling in God's house. There is a gathering, protecting, refuge aspect here. It is our God. The language is corporate. The courts of our God, not merely private. And I make this point because um, we live in a, in a very individualizing age. We live in an age of urban isolation. Much of our lives isolates us. The internet isolates us. And so we need to fight against it. We need to acknowledge and see that scripture calls us to this corporate expression of worship and faith. 
So the, the Sabbath, to sum up, is given to the church as a way to keep our Creator God, our Redeemer Lord, in the center of our lives through gathered worship and praise. And that's why we speak in our tradition, in particular, of, of the means of grace, the preaching of the Word, the breaking of bread, baptism. And so, by way of application, brothers and sisters, as we move on to our second point, don't neglect the gathering as Hebrews says, of God's people for worship. Safeguard it and cherish it. Prepare for it. Love it. Delight in it. And brings us to our second point. In worship, we exalt the Lord uh, as judge, as king who rules and governs and brings order from out of chaos and brokenness. The psalm in the Lord's day does not ignore sin or rebellion. Working our way out from the central praise of the Lord, we see that the next outer ring of our target is surrounded by two stanzas which speak of judgment of those who are portrayed as fools, those who don't understand. Verse 5 to 7 speak of the wicked who sprout up like grass but are doomed to destruction forever. And this is reminiscent, and, and indeed Psalm 92 one Lord's Day uh, practice for you this afternoon could be read Psalm 90 and 92 all as a set. They kind of go together and prepare us for Psalm 93. Some people, even commentators, medieval commentators, thought that Moses was the author of all three. Remember, Moses teaches the Sabbath from Mount Sinai. And so maybe all three of these Psalms, because they don't have ascriptions of 91 and 92. But it's reminiscent of Psalm 90. There are many key words and themes. Where we read, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And you remember Psalm 90 is reflecting, Oh Lord, you've been our dwelling place forever. But but the years of man are 70 or 80 years. Life is so passing, it's a vapor. It's that language of, of wisdom and Ecclesiastes. And this is what our psalm is referring to when it says, The depth of the Lord's thoughts. Lord, your your thoughts are very deep. We don't understand. We don't understand why people get sick and die. We don't understand why for some people it's at age 40 and some people it's at age 90. The fool thinks that attaining the riches or the pleasures or the experiences of this world give them Something to build on, comfort and prosperity. They don't understand that the Lord's plans are mysterious. Jesus says in the parable, you fool, this very day your life is demanded. If you're building warehouses to store up riches, store your wealth in heaven. The flourishing of the evildoers is like a mirage. And sometimes, believers, don't we all look around and think... I could live like a pagan. I could live like a godless person. I might get further ahead in life. I might have more toys. I might have a bigger house. The Lord is on high. All the chaos of the world, our eyes, the deceits, the pleasures of the flesh, the Lord is ruling on high. And likewise, the stanza that follows the central verse, 9 through 11, is even more emphatic about the coming day of judgment. The poet uses repetition for emphasis. For behold, listen up, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. As the the psalm closes, the Lord is righteous 
And those who do evil set themselves opposed to him. They set themselves in opposition. They make themselves his enemy. The wages of sin is death. The fool, the evildoer, has made himself the Lord's enemy. And it's clear that his downfall is not just a a passive result of this. It is the Lord's doing. He is ruling and reigning and will judge and put all things to right. He gathers his children for worship and in the courts of his house. As he gathers his own, he scatters those who bash themselves against him like a rock. The Lord accomplishes this victory even in and through the lives of his saints, through the testimony, through the witness, even through our worship. That's one of the amazing things. As God is pouring oil on our heads here, as he is refreshing us and renewing us, and we'll see in the opening and closing stanza, as we are declaring his name, God is bringing about his victory. He exalts the horn of the psalmist. The psalmist is comforted that his enemies have set themselves up against his Lord. He hears and sees their downfall and their doom. The context here probably for the Israelites who sang this song originally is in the exile or after the exile. They had a lot of enemies. Their lives were torn to pieces. They had lost loved ones, homes, all their wealth, all their land. They were prisoners. And so there's comfort in knowing that God will bring justice. Brothers and sisters, we may get discouraged by way of application as we look out at the world today. A world where the church, the God of the Bible, seems to be in decline in the mind and the consciousness of our culture. Our faith, our God, is boldly and consistently mocked. God has his enemies in this world. But the Lord gathers us here in worship to give him thanks and praise, to lift up his name, to proclaim what is true and good and beautiful. The good news of the gospel is that the doors to God's house are open to all of those enemies. Jesus died for us. He showed his love for us while we were those enemies. And so that's one thing that the gospel sheds some light on this psalm. We, to an even greater extent, open our doors to Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female. We could add black and white, all races, all creeds, all nationalities, all tribes. The Lord is on high forever at the center of our psalm, but he's surrounded by these enemies and evildoers. This too, this judgment is a sort of resting, a sort of Sabbath. Um, The word for resting or ceasing, that is the word that makes up the rest of our Sabbath day of rest, is often, indeed most often, overwhelmingly used by the prophets with a sense of judgment. And it's a little bit ironic. The prophets repeatedly emphasize that while Israel failed to remember their Sabbath rest, the Lord will give the land rest because he'll take them out of it. (laughs) It will become a destruction. He will bring about the rest. And so the Sabbath is a judgment to those who find themselves not entering in by faith. And indeed, four times this verb for resting is used in the Psalter. Psalm 8, God stills the enemy and the avenger. You see how God brings rest to those enemies. A different kind of rest. He makes wars to cease, Psalm 46. Psalm 89, he made the splendor of David. That that 
tragic ending of book three as all of the Davidic promises are falling to pieces, uses this verb. He made the splendor of David to cease by casting his throne to the ground. And in Psalm 119, we read that he discards the wicked like dross. He ceases them from his presence. So God is going to enter his rest. (laughs) Will you be resting with him? Or as Jesus says, will you be in the outer darkness? When we fail to rest from our wickedness, from our sin and trust in God, God destroys our wickedness one way or another. He is righteous. He will restore order. And there's another way that the Sabbath purifies us. What a comfort here that our catechism teaches us. That in Christ we are able to rest from our evil ways each and every day of our lives. And we let the Lord work in us. And we enter our eternal Sabbath rest even today. Because Christ has been judged in our place. Because he rested in the tomb. Jesus said, and we looked at it this morning in our catechism lesson. He who believes in him will not die. None of us will die the death that Jesus died for us. Because he died it in our place. And so Christ's spirit brings about Sabbath rest from our sins even now. And the coming judgment does not threaten us, but the prospect of life and health and prosperity beckons. And that's why we turn now to the outer ring in the third point. In worship, we proclaim our Lord's saving works of love and faithfulness. This psalm has law and gospel. And the gospel here is really the first word and the last word for those of us who trust in the Lord. Notice that in verse 2 and verse 15, we see the envelope of declaring, praising God. We sing praises to the Lord's name by declaring His, His steadfast love and His faithfulness. These are those characteristics that comprise God's name in Exodus 34. We are praising God for He has made us glad. And this gladness, this joy that we have is an answer to our prayers. Again, this psalm, Psalm 90, 91, and 92, are an answer in book 4 to what came at the end of book 3 earlier this summer in Psalm 89. In Psalm 90, the psalmist cried out from a place of sadness and the brevity of life and struggles of its difficulties. He cried out, Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad. We don't come to worship on Sunday. Some churches do this. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Put on that big smile because we all have to be happy Christians, right? God makes us glad. That's His work in us. We acknowledge the difficulties and sorrows of life. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. God, life is hard. Give us a little relief. For as many years as we have seen evil. And then listen to this language. Let your work be shown to your servants. Your power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish the work of our hands. And here in Psalm 92, we have the answer to that prayer. He has made us glad. We give thanks. We acknowledge his works. It's an answer to prayer. It reorients us around God's goodness by reminding us of what he has done. This act roots us like palm trees and cedars in the courts of our God. This is what plants us in the house of our Lord. God is our dwelling place. And this theme has been building. And it's important that, you know, that king who is high and in his castle, right? He has his keep. 
And if you were in the medieval uh, Europe, you know, that it would be at the center of the village or the town or the strong city. And under attack in times of chaos, you could go into that keep and be cared for and watered and sheltered. That's what the Lord's Day is for us. A place of rest. These cedars of Lebanon, two different trees are mentioned here. The palm tree that bears fruit and the cedar of great age and magnitude. Um, one of the things I love about my mom's house is that it's like 45 degrees and cool, 50 degrees in the morning when you wake up. It's that mountain air. And my wife and I would go outside and there's an old cedar tree, not a Lebanon cedar, but a same family cedar tree. It has a trunk about this big around. It's just like a foot off my mom's deck. And I just sit there and look at it. It's probably 150, 200 years old. And most of the trees in the whole Lake Tahoe Basin were stripped bare for the Civil War to build mines in Virginia City um, for mining silver. And so you can see a lot of new young growth, not old growth, but this is an old growth tree. These cedars grew to an age of 1,000, not far away from there in Nevada, is the bristlecone pine, four or 5,000 years old. Imagine still having pine cones. Seeding, fruiting, giving birth after thousands of years. The age of man comes and goes. And so as those whose duration might be 70 or 80 years, we can look at a tree and think of God's goodness. We will be like trees. Psalm 90 weeps for the children. And we look at our children. We don't need to weep for them. We don't need to weep about the world they inherit, its troubles, its trials, our politics, our economics. War, famine, plague. We can rest and trust and know that God has planted us in his house. What a comfort. I forget that every week. I walk out the door and I'm getting mad at people on the drive home. (laughs) The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. Psalm 1, it's the theme of this altar. We're not like chaff blown around. And the Sabbath is what nourishes and feeds this tree. The flourishing of the righteous has a purpose to declare that the Lord is holy. He is our rock. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, the placement of this lone Sabbath psalm near the beginning of book four in the Psalter is not random. There is an order and a progression to the books as we've been learning and growing in our knowledge of the Psalter. And remember at the end of book three that all the promises of God, the Davidic promises, the king on the throne, our champion, our hero, were in the dust after the exile. God's eternal covenant seems to have been broken. And this tracks with the experience, this psalm tracks with the experience of God's people returning, straggling back from exile, seeing the walls destroyed, trying to rebuild them, being dissatisfied with the results, having conflict. But book four turns a corner and teaches us how to praise God in the midst of a difficult world and a difficult life. In times of suffering and trial, in the brevity of life, we don't have a king. The Lord reigns. The Lord is at the center of our lives. The answer the Psalter provides is that the Lord is on high forever. It doesn't look like it. The eyes of faith see it. The confession of our hope trusts in it. Psalm 90 and 92 are a sort of prelude to book four, reminding us that God is our dwelling place forever. 
that we have an intercessor who has gotten God to repent from his anger and wrath and showers upon us his mercy and grace. God has answered the plea. He has given us joy and gladness, his works of salvation. His enemies and our enemies will not prevail. And as we look ahead, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Hebrews 4 reminds us that evildoers will not enter the Sabbath rest. Even in the church, we're warned if we don't trust. It's not by works. It's not by blood. It's by faith that we enter in. Not by our own power, because Jesus Christ has entered in for us. Jesus is Lord. He has ascended. He rules and reigns, and he rules and reigns. And when we worship him on Resurrection Day, on our Lord's Day, we proclaim that he is on high forever. We proclaim his death till he comes, because that's how he conquered our foes and his. We confess that his thoughts are very deep, that our life, our service is often a mystery, but his love and faithfulness is eternal, and he will bring flourishing and gladness and joy as we center our lives on the Lord, as he centers himself in our lives through this day. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use these weak instruments of bread and wine, this weak servant, paper and ink, to plant yourself, your spirit anew at the center of our hearts and our lives. And we pray that we might go forth from this place with a renewed vigor to declare your praise in our service, in our work, in our labor, in our loving and caring for our neighbors, may we proclaim and declare and put the Lord on high in our midst, that many will be drawn from the ends of the earth to know this joy and gladness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.